John Ziegler here. Excited to announce that we have our first sponsor of the Individual One podcast. Now, as you'd probably expect, I do not do endorsements unless I actually use the product. And I just started using this one. It's Imbue CBD. If you're a golf fan like I am, and you've probably read about how CBD is all the rage with all sorts of respected people raving about the various positive physical aspects of CBD, especially among people like me who are, let's face it, starting to feel the impact of aging. Recently, I started trying multiple products from Imbue CBD, and I can already tell that, among other things, I am for sure sleeping more soundly. And my wife says she loves the Imbue CBD facial cream, although, to be honest, she doesn't need it. In case you haven't heard, CBD is the powerful extract from the hemp version of cannabis. And while it may offer many of the health benefits of marijuana, there's no high, it's legal, and doesn't require a prescription. The source I trust for CBD is Imbue CBD. This is a top-of-the-line product and classy in every way. Consequently, Imbue CBD is not inexpensive, but I got you a discount to explore all the many ways CBD might be able to help you. Go to ImbueCBD.com and get 25% off when you enter John Z. Again, enter John Z for 25% off at IMBUECBD.com. That's ImbueCBD.com, promo code John Z. This is episode number 120 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the critically acclaimed program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a truly conservative perspective because, unfortunately, no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. And unlike the corporate media, we here at the Individual One Podcast have most definitely not been compromised or co-opted. Welcome to the program. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. And follow us on Twitter, at Individual One Pod. That's at Individual, the number one pod. Later on in the podcast, more evidence in a brand new book that we were really dead on right about what was really going on with Robert Mueller blowing it with regard to the Russian investigation. Uh, I'm not going to get into that. But first, uh, let's talk about the conventions. The political conventions are now over. First, the Democratic convention, then the Republican convention. In the last episode of the podcast, I said that there were basically um, two or three things that Republicans and Trump should focus on if they want to still make this into a very close race and have a chance of winning. The first was a subliminal message, or really not all that subliminal, sometimes very overt message, that they could send via the optics regarding the virus. I told you that I felt as if the Democratic convention was far, far, far too beholden to COVID. Correct. That it was essentially all about paying homage to the virus. Correct. And I had hoped, being a lifelong Republican, although not rooting for Donald Trump, that Republicans would at least set the stage, set the the premise that, hey, look, uh, you know, the virus exists, but we don't need to let it impact every single thing that we do. And I would say that the Republicans did a pretty darn good job of that. In fact, the last two nights of the convention, in fact, the last night of the convention, which was Trump's speech, 
was really, I thought, quite extraordinary from a visual standpoint. It absolutely set the tone that, hey, look, things are getting better. We don't need to, to uh, have this dictate every aspect of our lives. We can have an outside event. We can have 1,500 people there without uh, masks in the most part, very little social distancing. We can have a massive fireworks display. We can do this all at the White House, and nothing catastrophic is going to happen. Now, of course, CNN and others are, were immediately horrified, horrified. I knew they would be horrified that, my God, the gall of the president to have a super spreader event at the White House in, for his last night of his convention. And I will agree, by the way, that there might have been legal aspects of this that were troubling, but we're in unprecedented times. So unprecedented times, I think uh, you, you have to at least allow some flexibility there. Where did you want him to have this event? This is as controlled an environment as you could possibly get on the White House lawn. And, uh, you know, the media predictably and the left predictably uh, said, well, whoa, whoa, my gosh, this is so dangerous. What, here's what they were really saying. What they're really saying is, oh, my gosh, we're so envious that you guys weren't as shackled by the virus as we were. That's what they were really saying. Correct. And I, I do not believe that there's going to be ev any evidence of a massive viral spread or any sort of significant viral spread. I don't think there's going to be anybody... Uh, significant numbers, at least, of the people are going to go to the hospital. I don't believe anyone's going to die because they uh, attended the president's event. And here's, here, by the way, we will know. We will obviously know because the media will be looking at all of this with a microscope. Uh, you know, we should hear some positive cases by tomorrow if they actually exist. But my guess is we're going to hear silence. Because that's, that's essentially what ends up happening here. This is the constant theme from the beginning of the, the pandemic, which is warning about the worst coming. It's going to happen. It's going to happen in two or three weeks. And then two or three weeks happen. Nothing occurs. And we just drop it. And we move on. And this continues to handicap us because everyone is scared out of their minds that something terrible is going to happen. And no one wants to take a chance. No one wants to be vulnerable. Everyone needs political cover. Well, to Trump's credit, even though his balls are fake, at least he had the balls to do this somewhat right. And I thought that the visual contrast between what uh, Trump did, especially in his final night, and what Biden did on his final night was striking. I mean, it could not be more clear cut if you're thinking about the optics and the perception that Trump wants to create about what kind of an America we will be living in if Trump wins versus if Biden wins. You want to have a world where everyone's wearing masks even when they don't really need to and where the biggest celebration you can have is a tiny little fireworks display in front of a bunch of cars in a parking lot, then you pick Biden's America. If you want to have massive fireworks at the, at the uh, Washington Monument and no one wearing masks and 1,500 people outside looking like they're having a good time, then that's Trump's America. Now, I'm sorry, folks. I know liberals hate to see, hear this, but that is a powerful message. That is a message that can work politically. And that was one of my concerns slash suggestions. And I fully acknowledge I'm in a very weird spot here. I'm not rooting for Trump. I still hate him. Uh, but I'm, I'm also trying to let people know what's going to happen here. And I think we've been pretty dead on uh, from the beginning. And I think we're, we got our finger right on the pulse of what is occurring here. 
where Democrats are playing with fire. They are too beholden to the virus. They're too beholden to their base. And they're letting a, an election that should be a slam dunk for them become not a slam dunk. This is no longer a fait accompli. Uh, we'll get to the polling uh, a little bit later, and it's still Biden's still going to be the favorite, and I still have him as the favorite, but this is nowhere near over as it should be. And part of it is because of the imagery, the contrasting imagery of the two conventions, which I thought heavily favored the Republicans. Now, the other element that I had uh, talked about in the last episode regarding how Trump and his team ought to handle this and how they ought to attack Biden, they actually took some of those suggestions, although I'm not pretending that it's because of this podcast. They, they clearly had a similar worldview, although not exactly the same. And I frankly think they missed some opportunities. I think that they, they were in the right church, if you will, but they picked the wrong pew. The, I'm talking specifically with the two things that Biden did just before the Republican convention, which were huge mistakes. The first was this issue of whether or not, uh, you know, uh, there's a miracle coming. Remember that one where Joe Biden said no miracle is coming. Uh, and then, of course, then he told ABC that he would shut down the country again if the scientists told him to do so, which, of course, the scientists being around him, being who they are, would be very, very likely to do that. Well, both uh, Vice President Mike Pence and Donald Trump did try to take advantage of that during the Republican convention, but they did so in ways that I did not think were necessarily politically the most potent. I understood why they did it. I, I got it. And I even understood why uh, each of them chose the path that they did. Mike Pence, being a very religious man, decided to take on the miracle comment from Joe Biden from a religious perspective. And I acknowledge, by the way, if you remember, that that was part of what made it a stupid mistake by Joe Biden. Because he wasn't just investing himself in the virus not going away, for all intents and purposes, between now and the election, which it could to some degree. In fact, it very well could to some degree, based upon where things are currently heading. More on that momentarily. But more, maybe more importantly, at least from Mike Pence's perspective, he was insulting a huge number of Americans who believe in miracles. I mean, that's that is uh, that's the part of this that really baffled me from a political standpoint. If you're in the Biden team and, and this is this shows you who is running the Biden team. Nobody was in the room when that speech was being written. Nobody was in the room to say, um, uh, uh, hold on, uh, Joe, uh, do we really want to say that we don't believe in miracles? Do we really want to do that? Because guess what? even though I personally, John Ziegler, don't believe in miracles. I'm a religious agnostic. But most uh, polls indicate that a majority of Americans believe to some degree in miracles. So as a reminder, uh, here's the Biden clip from the Democratic convention. Well, I have news for him. No miracle is coming. And then here is Mike Pence at the Republican convention talking about the Trump administration response to the coronavirus crisis. An economic rescue package that saved 50 million American jobs. As we speak, we're developing a growing number of treatments known as therapeutics, including convalescent plasma that are saving lives all across America. Now, last week, Joe Biden said that no miracle is coming. 
Well, what Joe doesn't seem to understand is that America is a nation of miracles. And I'm proud to report that we're on track to have the world's first safe, effective coronavirus vaccine by the end of this year. All right, now, that's not the tact I would have taken. And I get Mike Pence being a religious person, uh, that he looked at this from the perspective of, hey, America is a land of miracles. Uh, The idea that politically the Trump team is going to get any benefit, any credit for a vaccine that's not available by the time the election hits is ludicrous. That's not going to happen. Nobody's going to give Donald Trump credit for a vaccine that they might get in December or January while he's still president. So that is of no political value. The only thing that's going to be of potential value for the Trump team and they need to set the predicate for it. They need to essentially predict it against what uh, Joe Biden said. Well, I have news for him. No miracle is coming. What they should have done, and it, there's some risk involved in this, but when you're behind, you should be willing to take risks. If they, if they really had the balls, they would say, guess what? We believe the virus is fading. We believe that uh, come uh, mid late October, we're going to see a very different landscape with regard to the virus. Now, if that didn't happen, obviously that would be harmful. But in that case, if that doesn't happen, I don't think they're going to win anyway. If we have a, if, if we have a third wave of the coronavirus before November, Trump's done anyway. So I don't understand why they don't they don't take that bet. So I thought it was I would grade it a B. Uh, you know, it was, the, again, right church, wrong pew, to use the religious metaphor with regard to, to Mike Pence. Then Trump himself, and I think this was the right idea, you, you know, if you want to do miracles, Trump's probably not the guy to take on the miracle claim, but and Mike Pence might be. Trump decided to take the other aspect of the mistake that Joe Biden made that I articulated in the last episode of the podcast, and that is threatening another shutdown. Now, this sent the media into a tizzy because, of course, they wanted to tell you that this isn't really what Joe Biden said. But Joe Biden, in my view, effectively did say this. And this happens all the time where the media selectively is very careful about parsing the language that is used when it benefits their narrative. Trump is a big picture person. Now, oftentimes he's dead wrong and he lies about it, but occasionally he's right. You you, you can be uh, technically inaccurate and still be right. Joe Biden didn't say he would shut down the United States when he is president, but the way he said it and and the logic that he used makes it very clear that that is a high likelihood of happening. That has a high likelihood of happening. So he didn't promise it, but using your brain and, and, and an understanding of how we got there and who's going to be around him with regard to the scientists in January and February of 2021, it is a logical conclusion. And so Trump decided to take that logical conclusion and exaggerate it and say that Biden promised to shut down. Effectively, this is what Trump says, and that that would have devastating impact. And he's right about that. And here's what Trump said in his acceptance speech last Thursday. Instead of following the science, Joe Biden wants to inflict a painful shutdown on the entire country. His shutdown would inflict unthinkable and lasting harm on our nation's children, families, 
and citizens of all backgrounds. The cost of the Biden shutdown would be measured in increased drug overdoses, depression, alcohol addiction, suicides, heart attacks, economic devastation, job loss, and much more. Joe Biden's plan is not a solution to the virus, but rather it's a surrender to the virus. Now, I thought that was more effective than the, the Pence claim. Of course, the media immediately, like the cavalry rushing into Biden's aid, tried to claim, no, 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 that's not what Biden really said. Again, technically, that's not what Biden said, but that's what Biden meant. That's what's going to happen, barring, ironically enough, a miracle. <laughs> the only thing that's going to stop Biden from shutting us down is if there actually is a miracle that happens, which, of course, would be rather ironic and typical for this whole situation. Trump is actually right about this. And this is a theme that he tried to use for a while. Then he dropped it. Now he's back to it. I've said constantly that one of Trump's great vulnerabilities in the coronavirus is he cannot pick a narrative that works, mostly because of his ego. I was dead right that he was going to pick the lane in his acceptance speech that he saved millions of lives. This is the narrative he loves. It's a bullshit narrative. It did not happen. And frankly, as a conservative, it infuriates me because if this narrative takes hold, as, as Trump wants it to, that government, that the federal government and state governments saved millions of lives over a situation that right now looks like a really, really bad flu without a vaccine. That's what this is. It's a really bad flu without a vaccine. That's what the, the coronavirus currently is statistically. If that if narrative sets in stone that the government saved millions of lives, then forget about any semblance of conservatism. Why, why would anyone believe in any in, in a semblance of limited government? If government really has the power to save millions of lives, then we're done. It's over. And so, but he's doing this for his own ego. It's an untrue bullshit narrative that I don't even think helps him politically because no one is going to give him, that doesn't already like him, is going to give him credit for that. But he's right on the facts. The medical damage, the cultural damage, the economic damage is far greater than whatever it is that we have saved or would theoretically save in a second full-blown shutdown should Joe Biden be president. He's absolutely right that suicides are up. He didn't even mention it, interestingly, because he's mentioned this previously, and he got some blowback for it, which was I, I don't think was fair. Divorces, we now are learning, have exploded in the last few months. So there's been all sorts of cultural carnage that, by the way, and this is... <laughs> This is a very unpopular uh, perspective because it requires too much thinking and too much logic. But if you accept the fact that the average age of death of a coronavirus case in America is around 80, that appears to be the median age, I would still argue, I would still argue, let's pretend that the government saved 2 million lives. Don't believe it for a second. Let's pretend it happened. I believe the two million plus thing was a bogus projection that has been obliterated time and time again, was never going to happen. Sweden alone proved that that was never going to happen. But let's pretend for a second that it did. I would argue that the collateral damage to our country short and long term has been greater 
greater than the benefit of extending, because no lives are ever saved. Guess what? I hate to break this to you. We're all going to die. That extending the lives of almost entirely sick and elderly people for another year from a cost-benefit analysis, as horrible a decision as that is to have to make, it doesn't come close. The collateral damage is way, way worse and was always going to be. But anyway, from a political standpoint, I thought that was a pretty decent argument. It's not, again, I'm going to give it a B because he can't use the A argument because the A argument would require him to drop this narrative that somehow he saved 2 million lives. Now, there's another element of this whole thing, which also dovetails with advice that I have been giving him, which is putting me in a very bizarre set of circumstances, dealing with college football. I have written and spoken about this extensively, much like I was ahead of the curve with regard to Trump jumping on the idea of opening schools. And they're obviously at least somewhat tangentially related. College football. Half of college football is shut down. Half of college football is not shut down right now. This is becoming a fascinating political situation. And as a college football fan and as someone as I've just mentioned, has written about this extensively, I feel like I have something to add here. The, the biggest element of the controversy right now is the so-called Big Ten Conference. The Big Ten Conference, traditionally one of the strongest football conferences in all of college football, consists of a lot of schools, state schools, from key battleground states in the election. Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, maybe even Minnesota, as Minnesota appears to now be a swing state, largely because of the protests and violence and riots there over the death of George Floyd. The reality here is that Big Ten not playing football, I said at the start, was going to help Donald Trump in theory, because who was going to get blamed for that? Now, in a logical world, we, as someone who knows the situation, it was liberals that shut down the Big Ten. It was not conservatives. The, the, the major players in this are school administrators, all of whom are super liberal, and Democratic governors. Democratic governor of Pennsylvania, Democratic governor of Michigan, Democratic governor of Wisconsin, Democratic governor of Minnesota. The reality is those were the key players. Liberals shut down the Big Ten. And the theory politically goes that if the rest of the southern portion of the country, the red states, play college football and there's no big problems, which I believe would be the most likely result, that those people are going to be angry, that those people are going to look at the this idea of, OK, which world do I want to live in post-election? Do I want to live in the red state world or do I want to live in the blue state world? And in the blue state world, we're not even allowed to play college football. But in the red state world, they're playing college football, and it actually looks like it's going pretty well. I, it was my view, those people are not going to blame Donald Trump for this. Now, the potency of that argument was proven by the fact that somebody in the Biden team realized we got a problem because they have tried to fight back. Now, they've tried to fight back in a way that I believe to be substantively bullshit, but... Politically, I think it actually is somewhat effective because this is a situation where they need to muddy the water. They need to muddy the water in the idea of, all right, who's going to be to blame for college football not being played in key swing electoral college states? 
in a logical world, liberals are to blame. But when a situation, and Trump does this all the time, when a situation is a clear weakness, the best way to, to handle this often politically is to project and to turn it around 180 degrees and to claim, no, 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 it's not our fault. It's the other guy's fault. So now the Biden team is in a concerted effort, along with their Democratic and liberal and progressive allies. They put out a couple different ads blaming Donald Trump for there not being football. Now, this is bullshit. It's liberals that shut it down. The proof of that is that in red states, they are going to play football. But if it muddies the water just enough, I think it could neutralize the issue to a certain degree. Not totally, but to a certain degree. And that's all Biden really needs because he's ahead. He just needs this not to be a clear-cut issue. Now, Trump, I think, belatedly has understood that he's blowing the issue. I think he thought, well, I came out in favor of college football playing. They didn't play. It's the liberals that shut them down. I'm not going to get blamed for this. But I, I think uh, that's not enough in this day and age. You've got to really hammer the narrative home especially when the media is against you. So now Trump is on this crusade to try to save Big Ten football. Now, I don't even understand how he thought he could do this. I don't understand what power he thought he could have unless he's going li- to almost directly pay these schools to pay to play uh, college football. I just, I just don't see how the president of the United States has any direct authority over this. But he tweeted yesterday that his discussions with the Big Ten commissioner had gone very well and they were on the one yard line for getting them to reverse course and to play. And I didn't buy that for a second. One, because I don't see what Trump's power in this is. But two, because we have seen this dynamic play out before. This is the anti-Midas effect of Donald Trump. We saw it with school closings. Remember, most of liberal academia was moving towards opening schools until Donald Trump came strongly out in favor of it. Then it became politically untenable for them to maintain that position. They reversed course. The teachers unions uh, went in the tank, especially in the big cities. And now most schools are not open. Now, I actually think Trump is not doing a good enough, nearly a good enough job, and the convention did not do a nearly a good enough job of trying to own that that issue. I think that was a missed opportunity for Donald Trump. I think they should have been blaming the teachers' unions every second of that that they could during that convention, the t- separating teachers from the teachers' unions and saying it is teachers' unions and liberal Democrats and their allies that are keeping your kids out of school unnecessarily. They have not made that argument. I believe it's a critical missed opportunity for the Trump team. I don't know if they're they're waiting on it. I don't know what they would be waiting for. But that was, in my view, a major mistake. But we're going to see a similar dynamic here with college football. Because now there's no chance the Big Ten plays, in my view. Because if they do, it will be perceived as them doing Trump's bidding and giving Trump a huge campaign issue. Can you imagine if Donald Trump was able to take a victory lap to get the Big Ten to play college football after the liberals tried to shut it down and then it goes okay? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm telling you, folks, uh, if that were to happen, Donald Trump would be a favorite to be reelected and maybe even a significant favorite to be reelected. 
they're not going to give him that issue because the people that are making these decisions are all smart enough to understand, one, that would be the reality, and two, they wouldn't be able to go back to their team and without being ridiculed, without being destroyed. It, it, you know, Once we ever end social distancing, they would get destroyed at their cocktail parties. They, 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 there's no way that a Big Ten administrator or a, a, a Democratic governor in a Big Ten state is going to allow Donald Trump to take credit for saving the Big Ten college football season. That's not going to happen. Now, this is this reverse Midas impact I've been thinking a lot about because I'm sure there are a lot of you that are pissed off that this uh, podcast has seemingly become much softer on Donald Trump. It's not. I hate him as much as I ever have. I'm just telling you reality. And part of what my thinking here is and why I'm not ever going to jump on the Trump train is that we have this bizarre world where when Trump is president, it so dramatically impacts the liberal elite in a negative way that it causes negative consequences. Let me take this out of the theoretical into the practical. If Barack Obama was president right now, let's be clear, if Barack Obama was president right now, we wouldn't even be in this situation, not because the virus would be any different. It would all be perceived totally differently. The media would perceive it differently. Academia, science, they would all be terrified of threatening his reelection campaign. They would, they would have confidence that it was being taken care of well because he's a smart president and we've got a moron president. So because they perceive Trump as a moron, which often he is, they perceive that everything he says must be moronic. It must be wrong. Uh, he's downplaying the virus. He's not. This is not the right decision to play college football or open up our schools or what have you. But if Barack Obama, if, if we were somehow in this current situation and the Big Ten had decided not to play football and Barack Obama stepped in and said, guys, this can be done. Let me explain to you how it can be done. Let's let me talk. Let, let me have you talk to my science experts. This can be done safely. This is good for America. If that was happening. Oh, my God. The liberal sports media, the liberal academics, the Big Ten Conference, the governors in those states, they would be falling all over themselves to reverse their decision. Falling all over themselves. If only because they, kn they would know it would be helpful to Barack Obama and giving them some credit, they would have more confidence. Well, if Obama's saying it, it must be true. It must be real. This must not be a major safety concern. That's not going to happen with Trump. So now we're left with who gets the blame. And Democrats are doing their best to try to muddy the water. So I'm not 100% sure who's going to get the blame. But I will say this. If this goes down as expected and the South plays college football, especially if, let's say, the virus is fading away in October and they start to allow more fans and, you know, no players are being hospitalized, there, there's, there's nothing catastrophic going on, I got to believe, I got to believe that helps Donald Trump in Pennsylvania. By the way, especially Pennsylvania, a state I'm exceedingly familiar with, I grew up in, I've spent a lot of time in, I've probably been in virtually every county in the state at some point. Uh, Pennsylvania becomes a real big problem. You know why? Because against my prediction, the ACC conference is going to play football. And Pittsburgh is in the ACC. 
but Penn State is in the Big Ten. So now you're going to have this bizarro situation where Penn State football fans, which is a huge portion of the state, they not only have to watch the South play football, they got to watch their rivals Pitt play football. And in Pennsylvania, and I love this, the high school association, against the advice of the governor, has said, fuck you, we're playing football. So that's going to drive those people bananas. So if all this goes down, as I'm telling you, uh, I think Pennsylvania, which has always been a key, key state, partially because Joe Biden uh, was born there uh, in Scranton, I think Trump has a huge opportunity in Pennsylvania based upon this issue. But it's all got to play out perfectly for Trump, and we're nowhere near there yet. And as far as the issues that are on the table for Trump to try to take advantage of, Again, I'm trying to look at all this as objectively as I possibly can, trying to take my uh, emotional attachment out of this because I don't have any dog in this hunt. I I don't have anyone to root for. I I hate everybody now. I mistrust everybody. I fear everybody. There's no, almost no, absolutely is no good scenario. I don't even know what the least bad scenario is for how this all election is going to turn out. But I think that gives me the ability to see things far more clearly. And one of the things I see clearly is I don't buy this idea that Trump thinks is the winning issue. And a lot of a lot of Republicans think is the winning issue is is trying to focus on the violence and the rioting and the protests in these Democratic cities and Democratic states. I get why they think this is a good issue and it deals with the whole thing of reverse racism and white people getting agitated, seeing black people rioting in the streets and people in the suburbs afraid that this what's happening in the cities will go out to the suburbs. I think that's antiquated. I don't think that is an effective issue anymore for Republicans. I think that white guilt has gotten uh, to such an incredible level that it no longer plays in the Republican favor. I'm not saying it hurts Republicans, but I don't think it's as big a winning issue. I also think this also goes to this reverse Midas effect. And this is something, you know, maybe I'm in a situation where I, I think this through too much and maybe too clearly, but I don't understand the argument that Trump is trying to make on the violence in the American cities. He's president. It's happening while he is president. Correct. Why would it stop if he was reelected? Why? What would change? If he can't stop it now as a first-term president, how's he going to stop it as a second-term lame duck president? He can't. Now you might say, well, but John, it's not his fault. It's not directly his fault, but I'll tell you, there's a strong argument to be made that if he was not president and Joe Biden was president, all this would stop. Why? Well, it doesn't make logical sense, but emotionally it does make sense because as soon as Biden is president, these same nut jobs that are rioting and protesting and, and you know, saying defund the police and America's a racist nation, they're all of a sudden going to think America is no longer a racist nation. Why? Because Donald Trump is no longer president and Joe Biden is. So the energy of the movement is immediately removed. They, they won't be protesting against the man when the man is their man. That's, that's, that's the way the world works. It's bizarre. It makes no sense. 
But that's the way it is. And so, to me, my response when Trump says, oh, you know, law and order and uh, this, is, this is not the – you don't want – America doesn't want to become these democratic cities. Yeah, I agree. But guess what, buddy? You just show me how impotent you are. You can't do shit about it. Do I, so I, do I want to put up with this for another four years? Because it ain't going to stop if you're still president. If anything, it might – the frustration on the left would be so immense if Trump got reelected that it would probably increase. Basically, here's the bottom line. Almost everything is the opposite of the way it should be. Almost everything is the opposite of logic. Everything is the opposite of the conventional wisdom. And the the violence in Democratic cities, I think, uh, perfectly fits into that situation. Now, as far as the virus itself is concerned, just a few words on this, although obviously there's oh, so much going on. Uh, but there are a couple of things that I think are important, and they directly relate to uh, whether or not Trump is going to be reelected or not, which is why I focus on this. A lot of people don't understand why I focus. I can't, it's, it's shocking to me that people th- don't understand why the Individual One podcast would focus on the nature of the virus when that is by far the biggest issue facing America and the world and clearly is a major, major component in the reelection campaign. But so be it. If those people don't like it, they can apply for a full refund. I'm, I'm happy to give them a full refund for the podcast. But I digress. Here's the update on the virus. As I have been telling you, the virus is slowly fading from a data perspective. Hospitalizations are down. Uh, new test uh, positives are down. Uh, deaths are slowly going down. Uh, to what degree and how quickly is still an open question. But I believe, as I've been telling you for weeks, against the conventional wisdom, against the prognostications and projections of the so-called experts, including the University of Washington, the most influential projection outlet there is that has been wrong constantly they're they've upped their projection of american deaths which is currently just below 190,000 to 317,000 by december 1st 317,000 by december 1st i do not even understand how they can possibly get to that number based upon where we currently are and and it makes me lose all faith in the so-called experts it, it, i mean all it takes is some basic math to realize that that projection is wrong. And I've gone through it not just from a national level, but also on a state level. My gosh, they made a projection as part of that 317,000 that Arizona was going to have almost 10,000 deaths by December 1st. They're at like 5,000 right now. I'm like, that's not possible. Have you even looked? Did you people even look at the data for Arizona? In the last couple of weeks? You cannot be serious. You people are fucking morons if you think that they're going to have almost 10,000 deaths by December 1st. And sure enough, within six days, they reduced the projection for Arizona by over 25%. I still think it's wrong. But the reason why this is important is these so-called experts. Look, I was wrong at the beginning, but I adjusted. I, I looked at the data, and as time has gone on, my reading of the data has gotten frankly, darn good. The so-called experts, they keep getting worse. Why are they keep getting worse? Because they're invested in their original prognostications and their original presumptions, which are false. And I'll give you just a, a little insight, and it's frankly fairly simple in figuring out where we're heading here. Just do this for yourself. If you're, if you're a stat geek, take, go back 
and take the the seven day average for either for cases. Let's say you go back 14 days from where we currently are, and you look at the seven day average when that was of what the number of new cases in the United States was, which 14 days ago was about 52,000, all right? You take 2%, 2% of that number, and that's the most number of deaths you're going to have on any particular day. In other words, 2% of what the seven-day average was 14 days ago of cases is going to turn into deaths, 2%. Sometimes it's even less than that. Now, you have to figure in the fact that Sunday and Mondays are usually very light reporting days for reasons that no one will explain. I'm still convinced this has to do with the way nursing homes report their deaths, and I think that could be very significant to figuring this all out, but no one can give me an answer to that question. But the reality is that based upon that metric I just gave you, in uh, a week or so, we're going to be down in the range of just over 800 deaths per day with or of coronavirus in a country of 330 million people. I mean, this is, it's unbelievable. It's just flat out ridiculous. With, with, with no sign uh, and no place for there to be any big outbreak in the future, because you've already gone through the population centers. You've gone through New York and New Jersey and Massachusetts and Philadelphia and Illinois and Chicago and now Texas, Florida and California. So where are you going to go? Where are you going to get the great third wave? Unless there's no immunity. And boy, boy, do they not want there to be immunity. Oh, my gosh. The news media so badly wants there not to be immunity. To their credit, the Trump administration is finally starting to talk about the concept of herd immunity. I believe too little too late. But, you know, there's no rationale. New York is a fascinating example. The virus has basically been eliminated in New York statistically. They're opening up their schools, although the teachers union has just threatened to go on strike, delaying it for another two weeks. I wonder whether or not this is election related, because if you think about it, if they wait until the end of September to open, it's going to be very difficult for there to be a verdict on whether or not the reopening was okay before the election. I could be giving them too much credit, but I found that to be interesting. But here's the interesting thing about New York. Unless there's herd immunity in New York, which I believe the statistics show that there probably is, why would you ever reopen schools in person there? I mean, can we please at least be consistent and logical? They're effectively admitting that there's herd immunity by reopening schools in person, because otherwise it would be idiotic to do so based upon their perception. Their perception is the reason our numbers are so down is because of social distancing and masks and, uh, you know, all the other bullshit. Actually, by the way, for just to be clear, I think social distancing does delay things and does work. I don't believe masks do. But the, that's the narrative that they're using. Well, if that's the narrative, then you can't be opening schools in person. The only way you open schools in person is if you believe that your population is not that vulnerable because you've hit some semblance of herd immunity. Well, these projections are all off because they don't accept herd immunity as being possible yet. Because if herd immunity is possible at 20 to 30 percent of the population instead of 60 to 70 percent of the population, like the so-called experts said, guess what? They were catastrophically wrong and it's all their fault and they will never be listened to again. Correct. So they will never accept that premise until they are forced to. And I think the data is coming close. We're not there yet. Is close to uh, that level. I think that by early, mid-October, there's a very good chance we're going to be able to say, look, 
most of this country and, and certainly in the population centers in the United States is effectively done with this. You're never going to eradicate it completely, but from a, from a pandemic standpoint, it's going to be clearly over unless something dramatic happens to shift the current course or unless there is no immunity. And if there is no immunity, well, then we're all fucking screwed anyway because a vaccine ain't going to work and herd immunity ain't going to work and you might as well just stick a fork in us. I don't believe that and I don't want to believe that. So that's the situation with regard to where we're heading on the data. There's been a lot of focus this week on the CDC announcing that, guess what, Uh, only 6% of American deaths are solely with coronavirus. In other words, 94% of American deaths had some other underlying medical ailment. Now, I'm somebody who has been criticized for for downplaying the coronavirus, and I'm, I'm someone who does not buy into this idea that 94% of the deaths are not coronavirus. I do not buy that. I think the statistic is significant. I think it's relevant. And I think the media has tried way too hard to downplay it or to rationalize it. So I guess I'm somewhere in the middle here. I don't believe that 94% of our deaths are bogus. I don't know what the number is. I would like to know what the number is. It's not 94%. All right. Because, uh, you know, someone who has diabetes or obesity and they're 55 years old, and they get coronavirus, and they die, that's a coronavirus death. And so the number is much larger than 6%, but I don't know that it's more than 50%. And here's why. Because we know the median age. The median age is 80. And so my counterargument to the media, like the cavalry coming in to save their their narrative when this story on the CDC went viral, is... Okay, yeah, I get I get that it's way more than 6% of people who had their lives curtailed by coronavirus, but curtailed by how much? When 50% are 80 or above, how much more time did they have? They had nothing. If they were in bad health, they had maybe a year, two if you're really lucky, and not great quality of life. So... I'm in the middle on on the issue of uh, that revelation. Uh, I do find it interesting that in our, our county, our county has had just over 100 deaths. We've learned recently that only two did not have underlying health issues. Two. Two. Less than 2% of our deaths were perfectly healthy. You know how old they were? 79 and 96 79 and 96, those were the two healthy people who died in our county where we still can't do anything because of this so-called pandemic. One other uh, virus-related note, and it's astonishing that this has not been the biggest headline in every single newspaper in America, every television network, uh, and frankly, I should have talked about it well much sooner than I did in this podcast because it is maybe the most astonishing fact we have learned from the data in all of this. I told you from the beginning, the data here is garbage. It is absolute garbage in every way, and it is incredibly vulnerable to being cherry-picked, and we're having our lives dictated by garbage data. Even I was shocked to read the New York Times article over the weekend where guess what? 
we now know that the most popular coronavirus test is prone to providing a false positive up to 90% of the time. 90% of the time, the most popular coronavirus test provides a false positive. You cannot be serious. All of our lives, especially here in California, are being dictated by what those positive tests say. And we now know that the test is too sensitive, that it is coming up with positives for people who either don't have the virus or barely have the virus. It's just flat out ridiculous. It's unbelievable that the New York Times could come out with this and the rest of the media just shrugs. And I'll say the New York Times tried very hard to mute their own their own scoop. They tried to make it sound like, well, this is an issue of, well, we need to do better testing and more testing and you know, more cowbell. And, uh, you know, but whoa, 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 hold on a second. If the test is flawed, guess what? That means everything is flawed. That means how many people are in the hospital is flawed because you have to get tested. Everyone gets tested when they go into the hospital. So if, if so, that makes me think a lot of these hospitalizations are not coronavirus related. And that also makes me question further the death statistics. Because again, all that has to happen is you have a positive test. Sometimes you don't even need a positive test. Just exhibit some symptoms and you die and they call you a COVID death. Well, now we know that the test is too sensitive. So there's all sorts of reasons why people could test positive and then be counted as a COVID death, especially when they're already elderly and have nothing directly to do with COVID. And yet this story has not gotten near, it didn't even get anywhere near the kind of traction as the CDC revelation that 6% of deaths in America don't have any other underlying uh, medical issues. All right, now uh, back to uh, other issues related directly to Donald Trump. And I already referenced the Robert Mueller revelations. Boy, boy, I got to tell you, um, you know, we're, we're not perfect here at the Individual One Podcast, but one thing we're really good at is telling you uh, who the good guys are and who the bad guys are, who the people are to be trusted and who are the people not to be trusted. And, you know, my, my daughter kind of set the tone on that in the very first episode. Is Trump a bad guy or a good guy? I think we pretty much nailed it on whether or not Trump is a good guy or a bad guy. I think we were the, one of the first people to tell you that Bill Barr was a bad guy, not to trust what he said about the Mueller report. We were vindicated on that. I was one of the first to tell you don't trust Dr. Fauci because he's a fame whore. I've been vindicated a thousand times on that. Correct. Uh, and uh, one of the things we told you that was against conventional wisdom, and I'm sure pissed people off because a lot of people were very much invested in rooting for Robert Mueller, is that Robert Mueller blew it. Uh, I'm not going to get into that. That Robert Mueller lost his balls. That Robert Mueller was schnookered. That Robert Mueller, uh, while he's a good guy, was not up to the task of taking on Donald Trump and his team. Correct. Well, we have more information that backs up and vindicates that view as well. Last week, we talked about the Senate Intelligence Committee, Republican Committee, uh, essentially saying that the president committed perjury in that investigation, perjury that Mueller did not fully pursue or hardly pursue at all, didn't even didn't even force uh, Trump to, to directly testify, uh, didn't uh, say that Trump should be uh, impeached for perjury, even though he clearly committed it. And now we have a new book by a New York Times reporter named Michael Schmidt that says that the deputy AG, Rod Rosenstein, 
took secret measures early in the investigation to ensure that federal agents would not look into Trump's personal financial ties to Russia. Rod Rosenstein told Robert Mueller not to do it, but never told the FBI, which had major counterintelligence concerns. So effectively, everybody thought someone else was looking at Donald Trump's financial ties to Russia. Correct. That is incredibly simplistic and yet totally brilliant. That is the most brilliant way to defuse an investigation. You tell Mueller not to do it, and you have the FBI thinking Mueller's doing it. Now nobody believes it's in their jurisdiction. No, everybody thinks someone else is doing it. It's so obvious that somebody's got to be doing it, and nobody actually is. I've seen this happen all the time where somebody else Everyone thinks someone else is vetting a particular situation and nobody does the vetting. And this, to me, has always been the crux of the Russia issue. And I've said it a hundred times in this podcast. It's all about the Trump Tower in Moscow. It's all about the Trump Tower in Moscow. The most remarkable revelation that probably 80% of the American people don't even know in the entire Mueller investigation is, my God, while, Repu- while the Republican presidential nominee, Donald Trump, was still, still trying to build a tower in Moscow that may have even included a bribe to Vladimir Putin giving him the penthouse. Correct. Uh, that's, wow. Other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? Other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? And the reality is Mueller blew it. Mueller was too naive, he was too old, he lost his balls, he was easily schnookered, his good nature was taken advantage of, he trusted people like Rod Rosenstein, he trusted people like Bill Barr, and Trump easily outmaneuvered him. And uh, Robert Mueller is exactly as I told you he was, based upon the current factual record. Uh, I'm not going to get into that. Another book is out with uh, a funny story. Uh, At least I find it to be particularly funny. And I think it's actually an example of where Trump is trying to be funny and the media doesn't know how to interpret that. Uh, Sarah Sanders, the former press secretary for uh, Donald Trump, is out with a book where she tells this remarkable story where North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un winked at her, winked at Sarah Sanders. Now, (laughs) let's be clear. Sarah Sanders is not an attractive woman. No one wants to fully talk about that, but she, she is not an attractive woman. And I guarantee Trump doesn't think she's an attractive woman. Doesn't make her a bad person, but she's not attractive. And so you have the North Korean dictator uh, hitting on her. And according to Sarah Sanders' own book, Trump thought this was hilarious and talked about it constantly and, and, and informed her that Kim Jong-un was hitting on her and at one point even suggested that she take one for the team. That she go back to North Korea and she take one for the team. You cannot be serious! Now, this is being reported and a lot of media types are saying, oh my gosh, so the President of the United States is prostituting his own press secretary to try to carry favor with Kim Jong-un. I don't believe that Trump really 
thought that. I think he thought that was funny. And it is kind of funny uh, in a perverted sort of way. Uh, but it's just another example of where uh, when you don't look at Trump object- objectively like I do, you uh, end up buying into false narratives. And the media has done that many, many times. Uh, we, a couple weeks ago, we had an interview with the author of a new book about Matt Drudge, who is one of the people responsible for Donald Trump winning the Republican presidential nomination and thus the presidency. And there's been uh, more developments on the Drudge front. I mean, Matt Drudge has gone full on anti-Trump. All I know is what's on the Internet. Matt Drudge, who runs the Drudge Report, a very popular uh, website for news, supposedly from a conservative perspective for the last several decades, is now fully on the Biden train, it looks like. In fact, uh, it's hilarious because he's now, in the last couple of days, been pushing this idea that uh, Donald Trump had some sort of a stroke, uh, that he's not physically capable, uh, much like he did with Hillary Clinton, which was a bullshit narrative in 2016. By the way, when did Hillary die? Does anyone, can, can someone, I'm trying to look that up on Google. Hillary died, right? Because I remember in 2016, she was on death's doorstep, according to the right-wing media. I remember that specifically. So she must... Did she die? Was it 2017 or 2018 that Hillary died? Oh, I'm sorry. Wait a minute. She's actually still alive and doing fine and even wants to work in the Biden administration. Wow. that's So they lied about that. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Well, Drudge is completely flip-flopped on uh, the entire issue of, of health, and it's obvious that he's now anti-Trump. And the, what that tells me is that he believes, because I know Trump, Drudge pretty well. I'm cited in the book several times, uh, used to fill in for Drudge on his old radio show, and I knew his right-hand man, Andrew Breitbart, exceedingly well. My guess is this means that Drudge knows or believes that Trump is still going to lose, that he has decided he's going to be on the winning team to set himself up for the next act. Trump, uh, Drudge is, Trump is also does this, but Drudge is always looking at what's the next act. And how am I going to set myself up to be in a, the better position? So, you know, he's been a king maker, And now I think he's trying to take the role of being a king taker. That if uh, Trump goes down, uh, Drudge will be looked at in a much better way by the people he cares about uh, in a Biden administration. And by the way, <laughs> if that happens, he'll probably flip on Biden and go right back to being the old Matt Drudge, where he is a warehouse for conservative anti-media news. Uh, but we'll see. But I found that to be another interesting development, given that we did that interview a couple of weeks ago. In a moment, I'm going to go through the latest polls and whether or not there has been any convention bounce for either candidate. But first, I'm going to do something I've never done before on the podcast. I'm going to take a question completely unrelated to anything we normally talk about on the Individual One podcast. And I'm not even sure why I'm going to do this, but I got an email and I agreed uh, to to do this. And it's at the end of the podcast. So you can forward, uh, you know, go forward in the podcast a minute or two if this doesn't interest you. But here's the email I got uh, yesterday from a guy by the name of Lawrence. Uh, Lawrence says, hi, John, big fan of the Individual One podcast. I was wondering if this week you could spend a few moments on John Thompson. I love college basketball. My first memories were the Shaq, Shaquille O'Neal, LSU teams in the early 90s. Georgetown and John Thompson were a bit before my time. 
would love to hear any memories you have, what John meant to Georgetown, and if there are any figures like that in modern sports today. Thanks, Lawrence. Uh, I'm, I'm sure most people don't know, especially outside of America, John Thompson was a legendary basketball coach at my alma mater, Georgetown University, first black coach to win a national championship uh, in college basketball. He passed away yesterday. And uh, so, uh, you know, this is an issue that hits very close to me in a lot of ways. Uh, I went to Georgetown. My parents went to Georgetown, met at Georgetown. I have three siblings that went to Georgetown. I have in-laws that went to Georgetown. We're about as Georgetown as, as it gets. And I was there when John Thompson was the coach. Now, the first thing that I'll say of relevance about John Thompson's death, and it's bizarre how the coronavirus has shifted the way you look in almost everything, John Thompson died at 78. He was six foot ten, and I'm surely I'm sure he was classified as obese. Uh, and his cause of death was not noted. In fact, it was noted in the article that there there was no cause of death given. Now, why is that significant? Because in the post coronavirus era, I read a lot of obituaries now, because I'm very curious about how we handle people who die at or beyond life expectancy. And what I've learned is, get this, folks, almost nobody who dies over the age of 70 has their cause of death listed in their obituary. Almost nobody. I defy you to find one. Occasionally, they'll say cancer or whatever. But by and large, even at 78, not an extended age, you know, it's barely past life expectancy for a man, even at 78, they don't even list why he died, which is why it's so absurd that here we have a situation where people that are in their late 80s or 90s are being deemed to have died of coronavirus. But I digress. As far as Thompson is concerned, I had a very um, complicated relationship with John Thompson. I worked at the radio station at the time, a terrible radio station in Georgetown, but I covered all the basketball games. And John Thompson and I had some battles. But I'll give you this. John, there is nobody. I've met a lot of very famous people, very powerful people, very successful people. I can't think of anybody who had a greater personal presence than John Thompson. Now, part of it is because he was six foot ten, big and black and, and, and obviously very famous. And by the time I was around him, he had already won the national championship. He was a media darling. But when he walked in to a room, the room stopped. He was as intimidating a figure as I have ever been around. And I don't get intimidated by anybody. And uh, so and, and there's some good and bad in that. But by and large, that doesn't happen unless you have something going for you. And so he did a lot of great things. My mother, who passed away in a car accident at the age of 51, loved John Thompson. I mean, because he put Georgetown on the map. Nobody had ever heard of Georgetown effectively outside of maybe the D.C. area and academic circles until Georgetown became a basketball powerhouse. They were probably the biggest basketball powerhouse of the entire 1980s. And it was because of one guy, uh, John Thompson. Uh, but, you know, he and I did battle. I deeply investigated a story that I didn't think made him look particularly good involving a drug dealer having uh, influence over a couple of his most famous players, including Alonzo Mourning. The media completely bastardized that particular narrative. I think the story is far more complex and more negative towards Thompson than most people think. Um, but I don't have any horrendous things to say about John Thompson. I, I found one of the more... Uh, 
the funniest things about him, and most people don't know this, is that he was a a slot machine addict. And I thought that was always very odd. To me, if you're a slot machine addict, it means you're really bad at math. Uh, but the, he loved slot machines to a degree that apparently was uh, legendary. And, of course, you know, slot machines have no skill. You cannot beat the house over a long period of time. But uh, he loved slot machines. Uh, but I have to say that I was sad at his passing. I, I think I'm probably getting to that age now where people who were a huge deal in my youth are starting to die. And, you know, that goes to your own mortality. And obviously, since he was the great connection to Georgetown's uh, tremendous basketball past, uh, it was a very sad day for, for a lot of us in the Georgetown community. And uh, I, will, I will always have fond memories, mostly fond memories, of John Thompson. And I do not think that there's anybody like him in today's college basketball world, largely because there can't be. Uh, for one or another reason, then no one can get to that level of celebrity. I mean, Mike Krzyzewski uh, can, the Duke coach, because he's been around forever and ever and because he was from a different era. But, you know, back in the Georgetown heyday, in the 80s, there was no cable television. There was only still basically only four major channels. Maybe ESP, you know, ESPN, the sports channel, came around. But the, the buy, there was no media fragmentation to the degree that there is now. So he could be a larger-than-life character. I don't think that can happen in today's environment and I also don't think that academia would allow somebody uh, to become as large and as dominant as John Thompson was at Georgetown. I mean, our, our president, uh, Jack DeJoya, is, is basically somebody who worships to this day uh, John Thompson. And I'm not sure you'd be able to find a president that would be in that position today. So uh, I digress there in a unique situation. Thank you for the question, uh, Lawrence. Now, uh, back to the polls and where we are and whether or not there was a convention bounce. The media narrative with the polling is going to be, where's the Trump bounce? Where's the Trump bounce? Because, you know, traditionally there's always been a bounce after a convention. And that's true. And so far, there is no dramatic indication of a Trump bounce with regard to how he stands against Joe Biden. However, I think this is a misreading of the polls because we are in a unique situation here. We have never had back-to-back weeks of conventions in the modern era. We may not have ever had it. I'm not unaware, but certainly not in the modern television era. There's always been a gap. So the question the media should be asking is, where the hell is the Biden bounce? Biden added a vice presidential nominee. He had a convention with glowing media coverage for four or five days. That happened just two weeks ago, less than two weeks ago. That should be percolating through the polls. The selection of Kamala Harris, the euphoric, orgasmic media coverage of her, the four days of absolute glowing media coverage with primetime television coverage of the so-called Democratic convention, that bounce should be evident somewhere. It's not. There's no Democratic bounce at all. All correct. In fact, if the media was prone to doing so, the narrative right now would be Kamala Harris is a disaster. Correct. From a political standpoint, she's gotten nothing but positive media coverage 
and Biden's standing against Trump is slightly diminished than in comparison to what it was before Harris was picked three weeks ago. That's a fact. There's abs- Now, it's not dramatic. It's a couple of points nationwide. It might be more dramatic in the swing states. We need more information before we can come to that conclusion. But just by virtue of the fact that there's even a slight diminishment of the Biden lead nationally right now is trouble for Democrats. Now, that doesn't mean that the Republican convention was a great uh, boon to Trump either, partially because not as many people are watching this anymore. The, the ratings for political conventions are way down from just even the last several cycles, even with nothing really to compete against them in this coronavirus era. So the reality is the conventions may no longer have the power to provide a bounce. They may only be watched by people who already like the candidate to begin with. And so there may no longer be anything like a great convention bounce. I mean, the, the convention bounces, even as late as 2008, uh, were dramatic. People forget that after the Republican convention in 2008, which I attended as a delegate, boy, that seems like a very long time ago, when Sarah Palin was picked as John McCain's running mate, McCain was actually leading almost all the polls after that convention, after being way down. And then the financial crisis hit and it was all over and Obama won by a fairly significant margin. But conventions used to matter. I don't know that they do anymore. But here's what I have seen already. While there's not a convention bounce against Biden, there does appear to be, at least temporarily, and it's still early to figure this out, but so far there is an indication of a Trump bounce with regard to his approval rating. And that's significant because part of the premise behind the idea that that Trump can't win is that well over 50% of the American people don't want to vote for him. And while he doesn't need 50% to win the election in the Electoral College, if 53, 54, 55% really don't like him and do not want to, under any circumstances, vote for him, that's an incredibly steep hill to climb. But if that number goes down to 50 or 51 that hate him, and 50% are open to voting for him, and Biden is providing an image of America that is not all that appealing and seems like it's not you know, no fun at all with masks and all these restrictions and another shutdown, and you're worried about violence in Democratic cities and you don't want your taxes to increase, I'm sorry, Democrats have opened the door. They've opened the door for a very narrow, similar to 2016, a very narrow, incredibly narrow uh, path for a small victory by Donald Trump. Well, we're not there yet. He hasn't walked through the door. I think he's missed some opportunities to walk through that door, as I already discussed in this podcast. But I think that door is open. And, the, and I think the first the data points to indicate that are that it, there is some improvement, could even be some significant improvement if this trend continues, in Donald Trump's approval rating. If Trump can get within four or five points nationwide and have his approval rating get up into the 46, 47 percentile, uh, look out. Because that right there, that scenario eliminates the Biden landslide scenario. That eliminates that, that takes it off the table. 
Biden cannot win in a landslide there. He can still win, but it's going to be close. And that then brings into the nightmare scenario that we've already discussed several times. The idea that Trump loses a very close election, does not concede, it's contested. We're in the middle of still an alleged pandemic, racial unrest, and who knows what's going to happen. We could have civil war. Uh, We're not there yet, but that seems to be the direction we're heading in, unfortunately. So right now, I'm going to only edge up the chances of Trump winning slightly. I'm going to put it up to 30%. He's still an underdog, but he is there. He has a pulse. Biden is playing with fire. The Democrats, I think, are starting to realize that. Former governor of Pennsylvania, the state that I've already mentioned, Ed Rendell, who's a Democrat, but at least he's not a crazy Democrat, is out saying that he's concerned about whether or not uh, Biden has done exactly what I just said. That's an interesting bellwether. I think Rendell has his finger on the pulse of Pennsylvania. So we're in some very fluid times right now. And if the virus continues to fade, the stock market continues to do well, the economy has been remarkably resilient, I am now seeing a scenario where Trump could win a very, very close contested election, which would be probably terrible for everybody uh but there's a lot of time still uh you know we still got all september and october before there's actually an election and we'll be bringing it to you all on the individual one podcast that'll do it for this particular episode please remember to subscribe rate review and share it via social media follow us on twitter at individual the number one pod that's at individual the number one pod until next time my name is john ziegler this is the global story network